Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live.
uh, when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, he couldn't get into the temple. And all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Really laying it out, right? Like, we, we in the act, do this. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What's going on there? They were saying this, testing him, so they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger away from them. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, Either grab some among you, let him be the one to first to stone her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And they, he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Jesus, uh, she answered, Why do you think no one, Lord? Jesus said, Then I do not condemn you. Go from now on. So this is a really interesting passage, and to be honest with you, it would appear that this story is pretty cut and dry, right? I mean, it's got a little bit of everything. A woman gets caught mid-shad. The religious police bring her. She's saying, right? I'm just saying. Green was still playing in the bedroom when they walked in the tent, right? You know, so like, you know, they, they walk in and, you know, and maybe it was genuine. I don't know who was playing, but somebody was clearly playing. Uh, and <laughs> I don't know if they had, if Tony was out yet, but if it was, that was playing. They walk in the tent. They, the religious police bring her, but not the dude. Not the dude. Um, and, and I'm going to, uh, I don't know his name, so for the rest of the sermon, I'm going to call him the dude. If anybody is curious, that's just uh, kind of the title that I'm giving him. So, thank you. The dude. They don't bring him to the temple area, but they bring her and they bring her before the group, trying to trap Jesus into saying that um, she should be stoned according to the law. Jesus, however, bends down and writes on the ground, um, which is a really, there's so much happening in this story. And it's a story we've heard probably too much for our own good. Because we've heard it so many times, we assume we know what it means. And so Jesus leans down and writes on the ground, which is a classic example of what in the heck is Jesus doing? Right? Isn't that a weird thing? And so Jesus bends down, writes on the ground, and says, Let any of you that are without sin cast the first stone. He writes some more on the ground. The men start to leave and say, Is this the teacher of this woman? He asks, Does one condemn you? She says, No. He tells her that he doesn't either, and she should leave the life of sin. End of story. Jesus is dismissed, right? Because that's the story. Like, Jesus is saying, Nope. It's, uh, and, and there's all kinds of versions of this. Some versions of this would make it sound as if Jesus is not concerned about the outcome. Some versions of this would make it sound like Jesus gives a threat. Like, don't make me come in there. The parents will get her killed. Right? It's that kind of thing. So, 
you know, you better stop. Don't make me come in here. Uh, because the, 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 um, the implied is that it's, it, don't sin anymore or else. That's versions, versions of that new verse. And you can only tell if somebody errs to the side of grace or errs to the side of judgment, depending on how they think it. The people that err to the side of grace really slam into the, um, you would actually catch the first stone. The people who err to the side and like the judgy God, then they lean hard into the, you better not do it again, go and sin no more. By their emphasis, it's telling us more about them than it is about him. no-brainer the characters are clear you've got stoners and swingers and you've got Jesus I felt like that was a that almost was the title by the way that I mean literally like I had it in the text for Brittany and I was like I can't do it I feel like that you all probably catch enough slack from your friends and family for our craziness anyway I can't do that to you on Facebook but uh, if there was a, a, a really small subtitle, it would be Stoners and Swingers. And what picture would Brittany put? That's exactly right. Yeah, that would be a different picture, wouldn't it? I feel like there would be some devil's lettuce uh, representing the stoners. And then and then I don't know what the swinger would be. Probably a picture of Austin Powers. Um but there would be something like that uh, that would represent them. So you've got all the characters. It's really clear. You've got the script. Jesus, he gives her a break before telling her to make sure she better not do it again. But there are a few questions, aren't there? Like, and this is why I want to get to the question of trust. As you read through this, if you don't walk away with questions, you might not be reading it well. How do we know God? People ask me all the time, so how, how is it that I can study like this? How is it that, what resources do you have? And I always tell people, the first thing to do is to read the Bible like you read Scripture. Slow down. Slow down. So the first thing that, uh, that it brings me to is a question is this chapter begins, and I'll put it back up just so that you see. Notice where it starts, that Jesus came to the Mount of Olives. Well, immediately that should tell us, well, something happened. Why? But what? This chapter begins with, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and there's something clearly missing. It would be like starting, it would be like telling a story and then saying, and now I'm going to get to the Mount of Donalds. I feel like there's some context that I missed in that, right? Or it would be like uh, telling a story and saying, and that's why I don't have any eyebrows. Like, what? What's go- what? There's something else happening here that I clearly don't know. And so it starts that way, that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Well, what is the alternative? What's happening here? Second question, what is Jesus writing? Has anybody ever heard of what is Jesus writing sermon? I have heard all kinds of stuff that people talk about and and they all say the same thing we don't know but but there'll be this weird stuff about his writing his uh, how much he loves them and he's that they 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 never actually talk about what he might be writing 
but they turn it into some poetic expression. And that's fine, but I, I, that to me, the, we have to start with what the story does tell us, which is Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but clearly somebody else went elsewhere. And the second thing is we have to start with the big idea of what the story doesn't tell us. See, when you slow down and read the Bible, the first thing you need to do is recognize that what the storyteller tells you is equally important to what the storyteller doesn't tell you. The details that are included and the details that are excluded are equally important. So, let's take a walk. Let's get an idea and try and figure out what's going on, maybe a little bit beneath the surface. So, we've got the characters figured out. We've got Jesus, we've got stoners, and we've got stabbers. Yet, there's something else that's really happening here, and it starts with the Mount of Olives. So let's just back up a little bit, because if it starts with but, there's something before but that's calling us to context to the but. Right? Okay, so let's get our butts in gear and look at what this might mean. So John 37, 39, immediately preceding that. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and let him drink. Has anybody ever heard this passage before, right? If anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and let him drink. He who believes in me, it's uh, a side note for those of you Greek studiers, it doesn't say the word in is added. It's not in the text. So Jesus is saying he who believes me. put a lot of emphasis in our culture on believing in Jesus, but very little in believing Jesus. Because if we're really honest, the Sermon, the sermon on the Mount is unbelievable. If somebody strikes you, turn the other cheek, is not believable. It's easier to believe in Jesus because I don't actually then have to do the hard work of believing what he said. Anyone that's thirsty, come to me. He who believes me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This really interesting thing happens. If you drink, you become a river. It opens something up, right? And so, but this is Jesus, filled with the Spirit, whom though he believed in him were those who believed that the Spirit was not the identical Jesus who was not yet glorified. So, does anybody see any questions that this might provide? Well, right out of the gate, now this is on the last day, the great day of the feast. Who wants feast? So we started, but they went to the Mount of Olives. We back up a little bit, and now the context of this great altercation between the slingers and the stoners and Jesus is happening at some great feast and immediately following the great day of the feast. And it's Jesus. So you have to step back a little bit further because there was something that was happening. They all were at a feast. So now we know more than likely that, that there was a feast. The feast was concluded. At the conclusion of the feast, people went one direction, but Jesus went another direction, right? But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, okay? So next thing that happens in John 8, John chapter 7. So keep in mind, we started with John 8, 1. Now we're in John 7, 1 because we're trying to figure out what's the context. What's going on? So in the context, 
walking in the valley and you've got those who walk in the wilderness and there's the feast of foreknowledge. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, or sometimes we hear called the feast of tabernacles, was near. So the context is everybody is gathering together for the feast of tabernacles. The feast of tabernacles in uh, in Israel was a huge thing. There were seven feasts that happened in Israel. This was actually um, um, a very, very important feast where they would all gather together. And what would happen is Leviticus 23, if you want to jot that down so you can see the definition of what the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles looked like. But there were spring feasts and fall feasts. They were organized around agricultural cycles of planting and harvesting. Feasts were common in the ancient world in agricultural societies. People would set aside particular times to thank the gods and also ask the gods for a continuous anointing. So what they would do is they would have feasts. They were gathered around harvesting and planting, and they would ask the gods, which wasn't something the Jewish people came up with themselves. I think God, because the Moabites did this, and the Philistines did this, and the Hittites did this, and the Jebusites did this, Canaanites did Okay, they all did it. All the options. So they would gather together, and they would feast, and they would, and they would structure those seven feasts. Now, the Israelites had seven. That wasn't the same number as everybody else's. I'll let you think about why that might be. If the whole thing is retelling uh, the creation story. But the idea of this is they would gather together around this, um, this feast and they would celebrate the harvest but also a continued bounty. The Feast of Tabernacles was the last feast of the year and it was the last of the fall feasts. As it was the last of the fall feast, it was the feast before winter where hopefully rains would come and trees would not start and grow so the, that was when they experienced rain, and they desperately needed rain because if the rains didn't come through the winter, then they didn't have enough rain to be able to harvest. So it, it started the cycle all the way over again. So they're harvesting, but they're also believing, give us rain so that we'll have another harvest. So they would all gather together. During this time, thousands of pilgrims in the first century would pour into Jerusalem for eight days of feasting. One of the things that we are not very good at because we're prudish in our thinking is partying. The Jewish people of the ancient Near East knew how to party. Eight days. Do you like a wedding in, in the ancient Near East was three days long? Three days of party. Right? So, what would happen is they would gather together in, uh, in Jerusalem for eight days of partying and feasting and celebrating. And they would, uh, they would construct these things called kukas. And they were literally makeshift shovels. In fact, if you, if you, uh, you know, look at this yourself, but there are people who still practice kukas that are practically used. They still build these in their backyards and go partying. So they build makeshift shovels, which you probably can fly with, um, just to cover them, and they go sailing. The reason they did this is it represented how their God had cared for the people in their earlier journey through the wilderness. Because everything about Jewish culture goes back to the Exodus story. That's their story. So with feasts, the first thing they did was that. During the eight days, there was 
sacrifices and giving and sexual rituals oriented around asking God to both bring winter rain so they'd have food to hide. The religious leaders would teach that it was a way back to the water as rain, water as thirst, and thirst is the best metaphor for spiritual longing. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of drinking that water. Okay? So, tons of water celebrations this week. Deities built up to this last day when the high priest would gather together at one of the aquifers where water flowed into the city, and he would stand there and pour into this stream a pitcher of water and a pitcher of wine. As this would happen, he would pour them together over the altar, and it would run down into the water that flowed through the city, and the crowd would chant something that you may have heard before. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Sound familiar? Sometimes we forget that Jesus is a Jew. Sometimes we forget. So like when they're waving palm branches and yelling Hosanna, you just think that that's something that they said because it means it's like this was ritualistic. This was something that they knew. It meant something to them. So like in a thousand years, if somebody hears that we chant USA, USA, they're not going to know what that means. But we know exactly what it means and when we do it and why we do it, right? We do it when we're in our drink tired of prayer. Right? That's just what happened. So they would chant, Hosanna is what would happen. So, with this in mind, notice what's happening from the other line we just read in chapter 7. In fact, I'm going to go back quickly just so that you can see it. So, what would happen here is on the eighth day, the great day of the feast, while they're all chanting Hosanna, while they're all shouting and rejoicing in this way, Hosanna to him who comes, Hosanna to the highest, Hosanna to the one that brings water and rain and life, Jesus does something really interesting because it actually says in most translations, he cried out or he shouted with a loud voice. Has anybody ever wondered why he shouted with a loud voice? Because you have thousands of people screaming Hosanna. He's having to shout so they will hear him. You see, one thing about Jesus is he knows how to make an entrance. If you actually look at chapter 7, what happened is the disciples are asking Jesus, hey, we're all going into Jerusalem to celebrate the, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus looks at them and says, you go ahead. I'm not going. It's not my time yet. He's a good Jew. He's supposed to go celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. What Jesus does is doesn't follow them in and then shows up here. And if you actually read the text, what he does is Jesus, while the high priest was pouring water and wine over the altar into the aquifer, representing God giving life for the thirsty and giving rain for the crop and being the God of abundance and plenty, and they're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. Jesus jumps into the water, walks through that stream of water, and screams at the top of his lungs, if anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That is a mic drop moment. Talk about theatrics. So there's context to this. This is not just a place where they're going to talk and know about celebrations and food. No, this is the huge celebration culminating in this eight days of delay 
Jesus screams out, and he chooses this moment, a moment when people were focused on their very real physical need for water, and calls them to return and recognize their spiritual thirst. He tells them that he can do something about this thirst. He tells them that er uh, earlier in the festival, I'm not coming until later, and he shows up right then when they're pouring out water and wine. Notice John's gospel is the only one that gives us the Cana story where water is turned to wine. Jesus is showing them, I'm the one who brings wine. Jesus is saying, if you're thirsty, I bring water that is constantly being changed into wine. Jesus is showing them something incredible. And so he screams out. He's waiting for this last minute. And this brilliant backdrop theatrics are happening, you know, th this is an incredible moment. So thousands of people are feasting and drinking and living in these makeshift shelters on the side of a hill. And Jesus does this incredible thing where they're all, they've been partying for eight days, culminating this moment. And he says, if you're thirsty, I'm the one who gives you wine. So if for eight days, thousands of people have been drinking and feasting and living living in makeshift shelters on the side of the hill in Jerusalem, basically religious camping. This is where church camp started. With a lot of wine being involved. Lots and lots and lots and lots of eight days of wine. Can you possibly imagine why somebody might end up in the wrong camp? decisions they had made the night before. It's not at all surprising that then the next morning the teachers of the law and Pharisees drag a woman into the temple courts who they've caught with a man she wasn't married to. This seems to jar us. Now, I'm not going to because I've talked about this before, and, and if that is pain you have, we can address that next week, Mark. But um, I'm not going to even talk about what's happening in this story because I honestly don't believe this is about adultery. But suffice to say, that the religious police are on the scene. And so they drag uh, this woman. Can you imagine what this would have, they don't, we imagine it in the streets of Jerusalem, don't we? The temple. It would be like right now in the middle of a sermon, people dragging a woman in here who's been living with her boyfriend, Josh, Bill her at the feet of us as a religious group while we're in the middle of service. Can you imagine discussing today as religious adultery? And the beauty of it is we don't do things like that today. We just do things like we throw people at the feet of Facebook and we throw people at the feet of Twitter. And we may not put them in the temple in front of a religious tribunal, but we put them in the court of public opinion where the religious people with no context and no understanding about what's actually happening decide to jump on them and judge them based on their religious ideals of what policing and judgment looks like. We don't do it in churches. We just do it in public. And so what ends up happening is we fling people into open court of society and judge them based not on the breadth of information we have. We tend to judge.
judgment based on the information we don't have. There's no contract needed when judgment can be applied. They drag this woman the morning after to Jesus because they want to talk to him. They don't believe him. They've rejected him, and they want to expose him as a fraud. He bends down and writes on the ground, but what does he write? Now we're to the next step. The first question is, what's your account? Now we know what's going on. So it's eight days of teaching his disciples. Second day, second question, what's he doing? Well, what the Pharisees and teachers of the law have been doing for the past eight days is very, very important. They've been at the feast, and what they've been doing at the feast is they've been feasting, but they've also been teaching. See, all day long they would gather together in front of the rabbis, and they would teach at the feast about specific things, and they had scriptures and teachings, almost like we do at Christmas. You know what Christmas Eve is if you show up at church, but you're going to hear about Thanksgiving. In the same way, if they showed up at a feast, they knew they were going to hear specific topics. Now, these may be from a different direction, but certain verses and certain topics were always talked about at those gatherings. So they've been teaching about water, which we know, but what passages have they been teaching? To talk about water, well, it's interesting you might ask that, because the primary passage that we find in these chapters is from the prophet Jeremiah. The passage is about dust. forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Get it? This was the primary passage that they had been teaching about the feast day. And they bring this woman in front of Jesus. And Jesus begins to do So what does Jesus do? He takes one of the passages they would all have been familiar with, and he turns it on them without saying a word. Here is the living water in their midst, inviting them to trust him, to drink, to believe in him. They try then to trap him because they don't believe in him. Interestingly enough, it says they didn't, they knew they were trying to trap him. They had hoped that Jesus would choose a trap. is because they thought that Jesus would say the law was unimportant. Because they thought Jesus was a liberal rebel. Snowflake Jesus is probably what they called him at that time. So what happens is Jesus does the opposite of what they expected. He doesn't say the law is important. He says, I'm So Jesus won't fall prey to this, and Jesus will not choose the terrible binaries and completely uh, um, demolishes the context of what they're trying to accomplish because Jesus is trying to create a new kingdom. And rather than saying that the woman was right to do this, and or rather than say that they had the right to stone her, Jesus brings a new component, a third way, a way of mercy and compassion and radical, radical, radical forgiveness. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't give a stamp or a statement about anything 
that they're bringing in front of him. He could have easily said, you guys are like idiots. What he does is he turns this and says, those who turn away from God or believe or look the other way, do you know what Jesus is writing? He's writing a warning against them. Because the people that brought this woman before Jesus were known. The religious leaders would have been like celebrities. Their names were known. So he started writing, Rabbi Zacharias, Rabbi Caiaphas. He started writing their names. Jesus did not let the old way get in the way of the new, but allowed it to understand that there's something bigger happening, that God is allowing anyone that's thirsty to come to him. Anybody that's thirsty to come and drink. And this is not about judgment. And this is not about ritual. And this is not about purity. And this is not about form. This is about thirst. And everyone has thirst. But if you deny someone drink who is thirsty, your name is written in the book of life. Faith itself in some manners needs to be stripped of its social and historical incrustations in response to its first searchless incarnation in the human heart. Sometimes we get too darn religious for our own good. The incrustations of social and historical religious sin will actually block us from what God wants to do. Jesus showcases this precisely because Jesus was a conservative. Jesus was a conservative in the true sense of the term. He conserved what was worth conserving. He held to the treasures that had been found and built upon the ground. And he did not let the accidentals and the incidentals get in the way. And the very things that he conserved were the important things, and those are the things that caused the people who considered themselves conservatives to call Jesus a progressive. Do you hear what I just said? Jesus holds to the things that are really valuable and important and foundational. And in doing so, Jesus is a true conservative, which causes all those faux conservatives who are all about ritual and form and purity and whatever is the showing of the day to accuse Jesus of being a progressive when he's actually demonstrating what it is to be a conservative. Welcome to my life. If I had a nickel for every time I quoted Jesus and somebody called me a Democrat, I could fund the end time harvest. Or maybe get Bernie elected. Just kidding. But that's the idea, right? That's the thought. So what I would like to suggest is that Jesus is showing us a third way. So as we close, I think the question still that you need to ask yourself is I would constantly ask you, is anybody thirsty? And our job is to make sure that they know where they can drink. And if we actually believe Jesus, where they can drink is you. Because if you drink, what Jesus says is, if anybody's thirsty, let them come to me and drink, and then you become a river. Why do we become a river? 
so that somebody else who's thirsty can drink, and as soon as they drink, they become a river. And then somebody else who's thirsty drinks from them, and they become a river. Do you see why Jesus said things like, these things and greater things will you do? Because he's talking about multiplication. He's talking about a change of culture where we don't have to wait till we die to go to some heaven in the sky, but where heaven and kingdom comes here. And we actually become seeds that bring trees for shade and that we become leaven that raises the whole batch and that we become the treasure that's found in the field that when somebody finds it, they say, oh my God, I've got to buy this field. That's what he's talking about. So, is anybody thirsty? Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.